W263AI Murfreesboro. W270AF Murfreesboro. WGNS Murfreesboro. This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. Good morning and welcome into News Radio WGNS on this Friday as we wrap up Thanksgiving. We got a post Thanksgiving show here for you on the action line. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and wanted to welcome in our next guest now, Katie Harris from Siegel High School, who's the STEM instructor. And uh, Katie, good morning. Good morning. Hey, I wanted to ask you about your guys' big grant that you received. That's awesome news. Perhaps Christmas coming early uh, for Siegel High School students and staff. Talk about that grant, and why is that so important, not to just feed the STEM program, but uh, for the kids down the road and, and future students who might uh, might see this and, and want to be a part of it? Well, we are so blessed to receive this grant from Richard Siegel Foundation. I write grants all the time, but a lot of them are just, I mean, every dollar is very um, great for our program, but a lot of them are smaller, like $100 here, 500 there. This one, the Richard Siegel grant, it was almost $10,000. From what I could tell, they don't really put a limit on it, but you write down a list of everything you would want for the program, and then you turn it into, well, I turned it into a project so they could see from the start to the end what my students would be doing. And then they give you a section to where you can write about how this will affect even beyond that, like the future, like the next students that are going to use it. And so I wrote it for a robotics unit to try to get more robotics equipment into our program. It's so expensive. Like school supplies are expensive. So at the beginning of the year, you know, teachers, especially in elementary, teachers will send home a supply list and it looks like so much stuff. But really like one project or one craft that the younger kids do can wipe out so many supplies so um, as a teacher and as a parent you know uh, when you get that supply list like donate supplies are so important so with the Richard Siegel grant I asked for classroom sets a lot of times when you do get money to purchase equipment a lot of times like you know if you get a hundred dollars or five hundred really that's only gonna buy like one or two kits So then you have, you know, groups of 10, which isn't really ideal. So with the Richard Siegel Grant this year, getting almost $10,000, I was able to purchase a whole classroom set of VEX robotic kits. And then on top of that, I got Spiro Bolts. And I also got this really cool, we haven't got to put it together yet because we're still wrapping up our VEX IQ unit. But I got this really cool hexapod. So it looks like a spider. I know spiders have eight legs. But it looks like a spider, and the kids can code that guy to interact with them. So it's going to be really cool. So being able to receive this grant is so beneficial for the students. They can, like, they're going to see what engineers and, you know, these professionals do in the real world, and they're going to get to do it as, like, 14-year-old kids. And I just think that's super awesome, and I'm so blessed to have received that grant. 
Katie Harris, our guest this morning on the Action Line, a high school teacher from Seagull, and they just received a big, big bonus, a big push, a big grant for their STEM program. And, uh, Katie, I wanted to ask you, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics all kind of coming together, a lot of that doing with robotics. Is that something you think is, is important? Because that's, quite frankly, that's the future. You see things kind of moving this way. Uh, it seems like robotics are, are just kind of coming into every facet of life. Is that something you talk to your students about and, and relay that importance? And maybe 30 years from now, this might be even bigger. It is super important, but I do want to say we that's not all we do in this program. It's just like a unit. Students need to be able to problem-solve, use their critical thinking skills, and be able to troubleshoot. So they can learn all about robotics, but if they can't troubleshoot something, even something simple, then working, you know, in this big world isn't going to, you know, they're not going to do that much. So they've, they've still got to, even if you don't have robotics, you've still got to be able to problem-solve, be able to be able to work as a team, you know, things that, like, me and you, no matter what profession you're in, you have to do. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to work with someone else besides yourself. And so robotics is super important. That's where the world's going. A lot. Of, we love technology, but we do so much more. So if a kid takes my class for four years, then when they leave, they're going to have learned about robotics, control systems, electrical systems, hydraulics, manual drafting, CAD, CAD super big in the engineering world, simple machines, mechanisms. They're going to be able to use tools. Like, do they know the difference between a Phillips or a Slotted or an Allen, you know, screwdriver? They're going to be able to use a Meyer saw, a Dremel rotary tool, a table saw, a drill, you know, so it's a lot more than that. So I know a lot of parents, when I talk to them about their students signing up for the program, they'll say, my kid doesn't like to code, or my kid, my girl doesn't like robotics. Yes, we're going to go over that because I feel like it's super important. But that's just, you know, that might be a month out of the entire year. So we do so much more than that. But this grant, though, by allowing me to put all this robotic stuff, it's just, I just feel like it just took the program to the next level to where we can, you know, now we can start competing which I'm super excited about because I'm super competitive. Katie, I wanted to ask you about some of those costs, some of those uh, the, the supplies, the equipment, things you need. And I know that's, that's a longer answer than maybe we have time for, but what are some of the things that just come to the top of your head when people say, well, where does this grant money go? You mentioned some of the grants only for $100, for $200, and that might not even make a dent in, in what you need, but this grant, $10,000, that should help. That should uh, be able to cover more ground. What are some of these things that you guys need that, that come up and you say, wow, that's expensive, but, well, we need we need it. So I teach about 100 students, and if I were to do one project, so right now my students, they have just manually drafted floor plans, and then we use computer programs to turn those manually drafted. So think about, like, blueprint. I know you've seen a blueprint before. Mm-hmm. And then they've taken those sketches, and they've put them digital. They've made them digital floor plans on the computer. And so now what they're doing, now they're having to take – that flat floor plan that they created and they're having to make it 3d and so not all of my students i i teach three different years right now and so my year one students which is about 60 students they need supplies so if i were to lay out supplies you know like something simple like a popsicle stick pipe cleaners foam board exacto knives you know we're thinking this would be like a simple project and 
you lay that out for students, each student needs, you know, three pieces of foam board just to get started. And then when you go to purchase that, you purchase it in, like, sheets of 25. Well, that sheet of 25 could be, like, $60. But you know that that's going to like 10 minutes as soon as you pass it out to one class. And so then, you know, you have hot glue guns and hot glue sticks. But we treat those like gold in my classroom because we go through so many of them. <laughs> and, you know, they've got to build furniture. And so they're going to take cardboard and cardstock and maybe, you know, buttons or whatever they're going to build to make their furniture 3D. So just a simple project like that, I could easily spend $500 just making sure that every student gets that hands-on experience. And that's just a simple project. That's not even dealing with, like, hydraulics where kids, you know, these syringes and tubing. So a lot of these grants that I go for, I have a particular project in mind, which a lot of them you do. You have to start with a project in mind. And I try to make that project based and turn it into a problem based. So where they're having to think about a real world situation, you know, like the landfill sm smells in Murfreesboro when you drive over towards Walter Hill. What can we do as a STEM classroom to develop something to make that smell go away? And so then it takes that project that I wrote the grant for and it turns it into a problem based learning opportunity for the students. So all those grants and supplies that I'm constantly after, you know, the cost of the program, it's a lot of consumables is what it is. So the robotics and the stuff that's not, you know, like tools, um, you know, that's one thing. But it's just like parents asking all the time, what does your program need? And I basically say anything that you're willing to recycle, like toilet paper tubes and, you know, like cleaned out plastic containers. So we do a lot of stuff like that. This year with the pandemic, not so much taking in all those, um, you know, extra stuff. But And then just like graph paper, we do all of our sketching because that's just part of the design process on, you know, grid paper. So if you're teaching 100 students and you're having them sketch every other day. So it's, the costs are mostly towards consumables, stuff that you would use and throw away. Is this going to change ways that, that you put together grant um, applications in the future? You mentioned for this grant particularly you laid out an entire project, and, and you kind of showed from A to Z, this is what we need, this is where it's going to go, here are the costs involved. Is that going to be maybe uh, something you try out again for, for future grants to say instead of asking for X, Y, Z, I'm going to show you what we're doing with it, I'm going to show you where it's going, and, and kind of give them more detail because it sounds like it worked out pretty well for this time. For most grants that you go for, they do have you write out like what, like your plan, your project idea. So I've done, I think every grant I've ever written for, because I always did the VEP grants um, that Nissan supports here in town, mm -hmm. and you do the same thing. You tell them like what you're going, what you need, what the students are going to be doing, and what they're going to be doing with it in the future. So that's just part of the grant process. I feel like as a teacher, any teacher that's writing grants. I feel like they have that project in mind and they're conveying that to whoever they're asking the money for. All righty. Uh, one of the questions we had, and this was actually a listener question that came up throughout the week, um, and this is this is perfect time to ask, it's the Richard Siegel Grant is the name of the grant, correct? Yes. So what, what does that play into Siegel High School? There's got to be some relation there, I would assume. Um, talk about that, if you would, briefly. Fill us in. Well, from what I know about it is um, Mr. Richard Siegel, he 
when he passed away, they donated all this land to build the school. So we have Irma Siegel, Siegel Middle, and Siegel High School on this land. Now, I don't feel like just because I work at Siegel High, they favored me and I got the grant. <laughs> but, um, I mean, if that's so, I'm going to write one every year then. But uh, <laughs> I do know that they were very, a very generous family that um, I don't know the whole history there, but I do appreciate what they're doing for, you know, that side of the town. Now, their grants, they offer them first. I think the biggest thing with their grants is it goes straight to students. They give out, you know, thousands of dollars each year for scholarships for students. And I know a, a girl who personally got one. She was very thankful for that. She received that a couple of years ago. And then on top of that, I know this year there were eight schools, I believe, that um, – they wrote, you know, applied for this grant and they got it. So it's not just that side of town either. So I know like Buchanan Elementary, Whitworth Buchanan, they're across town. They received the Richard Siegel grant this year. And so it went to elementaries, middle schools, high schools. And then the extra money that's left over, I guess, from their budget, it, they just they donate it to benefit students, you know, in this area. So I know that, you know, Siegel High School and Richard foundation i know that our names are similar because you know our school was fortunate enough to be built on the land that they donated but the grant it's not really tied into like the siegel school okay okay well interesting there sounds like a, a lot of love being given from that family and a lot of a lot of generosity and that's uh cool to kind of recognize them and that's something i had not known this morning so uh learning something already here that's uh that's pretty neat <laughs> Hey, wanted to talk to you a little bit about your background while we have just a couple minutes left this morning. Uh, talk about where you went to school, kind of how you ended up where you are. Were you more science? Were you more math? And uh, do you have any kids of your own that are that are coming up through school and uh, and all that good stuff? Okay, well, I am originally from a small town in Oklahoma, and softball brought me here. So I played softball. I graduated in 2005 at MTSU, so go Blue Raiders. Woo-hoo. My husband, <laughs> My husband was a quarterback on the football team. And so we met, and we just kind of stayed here because he's from South Carolina. So we just made Murfreesboro our home. I grew up loving science. I had an awesome high school science teacher, and she was so smart to me. Like, I remember us telling her, like, you're so smart. You need to be doing something else besides teaching us. Thank goodness she didn't listen to us because <laughs> I had her every year. I had her from biology to AP chemistry, and she made it so hands-on. Like, I can't think of one week, I know it's been a few years, but I can't think of one week where we were not doing something hands-on. She would even take us, we had this, like, nasty creek that ran behind the school. Like, it's it's called Tar Creek, and it was orange. And she got the science department from Oklahoma State to come and help us, and we did, like, this big research. So even though we were a small school, she just made it so engaging, and I absolutely loved it. So when I went to school... Uh, you know, at MTSU, I was in the biology department, so I graduated with a degree in biology. And the whole time, you know, going through that, I had in my mind that I was going to be a doctor. And I loved science. My minor was health, and I was just, you know, kind of nerdy. But I I was an athlete, so I felt like that was a pretty good balance, I guess. And so that's where my competitiveness comes in. And, you know, I kept telling Josh, my now husband, I kept telling him, you know, like, oh, I just, I love school. Like, if I could be a full-time student for the rest of my life, I would do that. You're like, I need to teach. I need to teach. While I was looking, you know, on how to become a doctor, like, I just kept going back. And so he's like, you need to go teach. 
And so I did. Like, I didn't have a teaching degree. Um, I just, like, I talked to Dr. Waldrop at MTSU to see, like, how can I turn this degree into a teaching degree without redoing school? So I got hired at Siegel Middle. And so I taught at Siegel Middle the past 11 years. And while I was teaching there, I was coaching softball. I was going to grad school trying to get, you know, my credits to teach. And there's a transitional license program that will allow you to do that. And you have three years to pass all your tests and to get, you know, your teaching license. So I did that. And I fell in love with teaching. I kind of just figured it out as I went. So, you know, my first-year students I have, I am so sorry. Um, I'm glad we, you know, we survived. But looking back at it 12 years later, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I wish I could see how my first year of teaching went. And so a few years ago, I I was teaching science, and I was like, my class, I always, you know, I had hands-on. Like, I just, I loved building stuff. I loved making a mess. I called it controlled chaos. And, you know, STEM, the word STEM was flying around everywhere. And a couple of other schools had had, like, you know, like you go to art or you go to music. Well, they had STEM classes, and so I guess part of the STEM program. And so she let me, and I felt like I just fell in love with teaching all over again. And the students were so excited to come to class, and you know that's rare nowadays. But a kid gets super excited when they're older. I know the younger kids are still super excited about school, but by the time kids hit middle school, they kind of lose that a little bit. And these kids were. Like, they were excited to come to my class, and it just made me fall in love with teaching all over again. But I loved it, but at the same time, I wanted to be able to do more. And so I knew high school is was going to allow me just because, you know, the budget and the support for the program. And, you you know, when kids are in high school, they have this goal of what they want to be when they grow up. And so I just wanted to get to the high school. And so, like, prayers were answered. A job opened up this year, so this is my first year working at Siegel High School as a STEM teacher. And so that's my background as, you know, becoming a teacher. I do have two kids. I have a 10-year-old, and I have an 11-month-old, so it's like we're starting over this year. <laughs> and my 10-year-old, when he was about three, he really started becoming fascinated with, like, crafting and building and science and technology. And so he was always at school with me. Because, you know, I'm a teacher, so the teacher's kids always hang out at school. And so whatever my students did that day, he would try to do. You know, as a seven-year-old, he would try to build it after school. And he's actually, you know, I know I'm a little biased, but he's actually pretty good at it. So um, he just loved it, and it makes me so excited. And now he's super into technology. So the quarantine, which I, the quarantine started when I was still on maternity leave. And so we just spent so much time together. So he's become so fluent with um just knowing how to work the computer and photoshopping and making PowerPoints as a 10-year-old. He's recently got into um, rapping. So he just he just wrote and like he just wrote a Thanksgiving song actually. And he's super <laughs> proud about it. He just put it on YouTube. It's Very called cool. My Pants Don't Fit No More. So if you want to look that up, he would be super excited. And he wrote the words to it. It's hilarious. Keep in mind he is in fourth grade and <laughs> put a beat behind it and so um now the little one the little one's 11 months so we'll see you know where life takes him but right now my 10 year old he wants to be an architect and he wants to be an architect for disney so you know i'm gonna keep pushing at that because we love disney world 
Absolutely love it, and uh, that's a song I think we're all going to be humming today after the day after Thanksgiving. That'll be uh, that'll be pretty good. So uh, that is awesome. So you got a couple kids, and uh, sounds like some of them could be future STEM students. Maybe they'll end up in your classroom someday. But uh, you know that's a, that's a couple years off, but something cool to think about there. Our guest this morning, Katie Harris from Siegel High School, who's a first year teacher at Siegel High School, the STEM instructor, and well, you guys just received a big grant, the Richard Siegel Grant, that's going to help push forward and build this program, build it bigger and better. And I uh, can't think of someone better at the helm than yourself. It sounds like you're, you're ready to take this on and, and keep going and building it bigger and better. So um, I'm, I'm sure the, the teachers and staff and students and everybody around there is excited to have somebody with, with such motivation in the driver's seat. That's That's got to be a good thing, and that'll that'll be great for that program. Uh, something I wanted Thank to ask you, so you about, I, I got a, a nephew who is, is involved in robotics. He's done some STEM stuff at school. Um, but I asked him, I said, what is, what is the classroom like? Because this is something I didn't have. I said, what kind of kids um, are in the classroom? Is it boys, girls? Is it, uh, is it athletes? Is it, you know, kids, you know, who, what kind of crowd are you looking at? He said, it's a lot of boys, but, and, he, and this is something we talked about, not always the case. So you're, you're getting more girls in, in the class and, and more ladies involved. Talk about that, and why is that so important? Well, it's so important because I'm a girl. And I come home to boys, and I would love to hang out with a few <laughs> girls during the day also. <laughs> but any student can take this pathway. So I know if you want to be a nurse or a doctor when you grow up, that um, you know, then you should take the health science pathway. Or if you want to do like marketing or business, they have that pathway. Yes, that's important. It's helpful. But if you just want to have a class that is hands-on, you're making stuff, you're problem-solving, take the STEM pathway. Yes, it's we do engineering standards, so if you want to be an engineer or an architect, this is the pathway for you. But I have several students, because I taught them for three years at the middle school and I moved to high school with them, so they're taking, like I have one student, she wants to be a tennis coach, but she's in my pathway because she loves my class. And so you don't have to necessarily want to be an engineer to take this pathway. You know, when I mean, when I went to school, we didn't really even have a pathway, and I feel like I made it okay through college. But anytime I have athletes, I have you know a couple of kids on the basketball team. I have several on the football team, several on the baseball team. I have kids that like to do video games, which will um, code and do app development in my class also. So I try to touch, which the standards actually align to hit a lot of different student needs, but I try to make sure my projects are, you know, you might not like this one, but hang on for about two weeks and then we're going to be doing this. And so if you are a girl who just likes to make stuff, I know that, you know, there's a big difference between STEM and crafting, but if you like to make stuff or if you're thinking, oh, I like to decorate or interior design, then the STEM pathway is for you. Because we're going to go over manual tracking, we're going to go over blueprints, floor plans, and that's going to be very beneficial for you if you are major, you know, if your major is interior design. So I would love to get students from all types of backgrounds with all types of future plans and boys and girls, because right now I teach three girls face-to-face. I have about 11 girls, but we're, you know, half of my students are distance learning, half of them are face-to-face. And so I... I spent my entire week talking to three females. So I definitely need some more girls in there. And girls can do this profession. This is not, you know, STEM is not just a boy's world. 
um, it's boys and girls. So if you like to problem solve, if you're creative or you want to learn how to be creative, you just have to practice. Uh, you know, we work on communication and digital literacy and teamwork and, you know, critical analysis. So we cover all of this in this pathway. So I just want to put a plug in there for if you're thinking or, if, you know, if you're an adult and you have a child and you're like, what pathway should my student take? Sign them up for STEM. They're going to learn a bunch of different stuff. And I really do feel like it's going to be beneficial and they're going to have fun doing it. And I think that's that's such a cool thing about being in high school, being in middle school, is to be able to try these things. And uh, you're not you're not signing your life to it. You're not saying this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But you can try it out. You can you can get a good feel for it. And uh, you know, kind of worked in the opposite effect. But I did a, a building trades class, and after I hit myself in the hand with a hammer about 30 times, I thought not for me. Uh, but you know, <laughs> you, you can try that stuff. And and I think that's that's one of the neat things about uh, being in school and, and being at that age is you can just you can try these things out and see if you like them. And uh, with no real uh, attachment, you know, you try it for a semester, try it for a year. If you like it, you keep going, and uh, if not, you know, there's there's plenty out there to see. But uh, well, Katie, thank you so much for uh, giving us a few minutes this morning. Wanted to see if you had any final thoughts, any shout outs, anything we missed. As uh, we've been chatting here for quite a bit, covered a lot of ground, and I just wanted to congratulate you again on that grant and uh, best of best of luck and success for you and your students uh, moving forward. Thank you so much. I'm like thank you for allowing me to have time on your show and putting a plug in you know trying to get kids to sign up for the course um nothing really more to add it's just in you know stem is learn by doing so that's kind of our motto when students ask for help and they're like will you just show me i the i i look at them and i say no you're going to learn by doing so um i could show you but you need to learn by doing so if you're that type of student that likes to learn by doing and not sit there and take notes, um, you know, like I'm definitely not a lecture class, and STEM is for you. All righty, and just a quick reminder for those out there listening to music, the uh, the new hit, My Pants Don't Fit No More, available on YouTube. I'm going to check <laughs> that out. I think... <laughs> that is going to be fun. Well, thank you so much, Katie. You have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, and uh, we'll be in touch. I want to hear more about this, so we'll have to be in touch. Okay, you too. Thank you. All righty, thank you. Alrighty, folks, that wraps us up for the halfway point on the action line this morning. News and weather on the way. We'll also chat with Christian Smart, who's a local author, and we're going to chat about his new book on risk management. All that coming up here before the top of the hour, and Truman Jones do at the top of the hour. We also have some MTSU action for you, so keep it right here on News Radio WGNS. Thank you to everybody for listening. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and uh, we'll be just right back. Quick reminder as well, weather and traffic this hour brought to you by First Class Sales and Service of Smyrna. They're your hometown auto repair shop, and they're reminding you not to wait on those repair jobs and end of your maintenance. In fact, simple things like windshield wipers, fluids, even oil, they can be all crucial in the cold, cold months. So don't wait. Talk to one of their experts today. And if you're a teacher, student, or first responder in Rutherford County, figure out how you can receive discounts on labor costs for your next job. That's right. They're offering discounts on labor for teachers, students, and first responders. That's First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna, located on 307 Hazelwood Drive. We'll be right back. As cold and flu season approaches, one of the best things that you can do to give somebody who is sick is a quart of Demas's chicken and rice soup. This is Peter Demas with Demas Family of Restaurants. This soup is my grandmother's recipe, and we have used this soup in order to help our family whenever we are sick. Just gives us a good comfort feeling. 
One of the things that you can also do is you can now ship that soup anywhere across the United States. And you can order that soup online at DemasFamilyKitchen.com. The forecast here for this afternoon calls for continued sunshine with a high in the mid-60s. Heading into tonight, mostly cloudy, lower 40s. I'm meteorologist Derek Dahlman on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 36. Morning traffic still moving right now, down 24 coming in from Coffee County into Rutherford County, passing Epps Middle Road. We did see quite a bit of radar earlier on 24 around Medical Center Parkway. Just give yourself extra time out here, slow it down. To cater your next holiday party, call Prince's Hot Chicken or go online, princesshotchicken.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. I'd like to mention that Christmas is coming up. Hello, this is Dan Mitchell. If you're shopping for someone special, bring them into the Music World and Drummer's Den. Let them pick out the instrument they want. Santa Claus will get big smiles at Christmas. You'll be happier, they'll be happier. It's a very personal choice what instrument you play. You want to touch it, feel it, hear it. You can't do that online. Come on down to Music World and Drummer's Den across from Indian Hills Golf Course, 2762 South Church Street. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna is reminding you not to wait on that next car repair job. As a matter of fact, if you're a teacher or first responder, there are special discounts available to you on your next job. So stop by First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. That's First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. Precision Air knows you want the air inside your home as safe and clean as possible. Clean the air in your home with an affordable UV system, reducing microorganisms including bacteria, viruses, and allergens. Call Precision Air, 615-930-0088. That's 615-930-0088. Welcome back into News Radio WGNS. This is the action line, and hopefully everybody's working off that uh, the turkey hangover and uh, all that wonderful food you've surely been eating these last couple days. I'd like to thank our first guest for uh, giving us a few minutes this morning. And as we make our way into the back half of the action line, Christian Smart, our guest this morning, who just uh, came out with a book. And and with that, I say, Christian, welcome in. Oh, well, thank you, Nick. So it, this is the first time we've uh, had somebody on for this uh, segment of the action line that, that had written a book, that it had gone through. And, and a lot of people, I think a lot of people talk about it. A lot of people say, well, that'd be a cool thing to do. But you did it. You, you did it. You went from A to Z. You get the whole thing done. Uh, talk about this book. What is the book about? What drew you to uh, to want to do this and, and kind of push you through? It's got to be a long process. It's a very long process. It's pretty interesting. I learned a lot along the way. So the title of my book is Solving for Project Risk Management. And it's about understanding the critical role of uncertainty in project management. All types of projects are subject to risk. And, it's ev- and the good evidence of that is the cost, growth, and schedule delays we see in, in major projects. So, for example, a uh, a project still currently underway started out with a price tag of a billion dollars, and it's now going to cost more than $10 billion. And it still hasn't launched yet. It's planned for launch next March. So uh, you see that 
over and over again. You see these frequent overruns, frequent delays, and they're, they're pretty significant. And uh, I've, I've been working for a while in this area in doing cost estimates and schedule estimates for these pro projects. And I see this, this problem continuing, and uh, I've done risk analysis for them. And uh, I found that, the, that people still don't appreciate the, the true uh, magnitude of risk. And so I've written this book to try to convey that and, and to uh, help people and projects and project managers understand, better understand the need to really understand the magnitude of risk and, and how to deal with it. So that's what my book's about. And I would think a lot of those similar things may be parallel from the project to, to writing this book, because writing a book is a risk. There's a lot yes. involved. Um, you know, there's overhead. There are, I'm sure, un, unseen costs that pop up. And, you know, not to mention just making sure you can write the whole thing and have a finished product, a good product. Did any of those things maybe act as parallels where you were talking about in the book and you say, and this actually is, is kind of playing into what I'm doing writing the book? Yes, to some extent. I, uh, it, 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 this was a long process of writing the book. So I, um, the genesis was some conference presentations I had written. Uh, over a series of years, and uh, so it's kind of an incremental process. So, and they were all related to risk. And so, uh, around uh, 2014, I put together a draft table of contents for a proposed book. Um, my background is largely in defense and aerospace, so the, it was focused on that. And then I, I kind of put it aside for a few years and started working on it again, uh, kind of in my spare time. And yeah. so, it was one of those things where it was relatively low risk because it was just something I did as I as I had time. And it was, it was one of these cases where, in, in terms of uncertainty, there's a lot of upside, but not a lot of downside. It's just the downside was just the spare time that I uh, spent writing and, and working on the book. And I had a lot of material for the book already through my conference presentations, my conference papers. So I, uh, around 2019, I had a draft manuscript put together. It was uh, around 250 pages and just a Word document that I had started putting together. And I started looking for a publisher at that time. A friend of mine turned me on to his agent. Never did sign a deal, but... Um, you know, really, I've, what I've always found throughout my career is it's about uh, connections and networking and who you know. I've always found that to be the case with, with jobs and work. And in this case with this book, I, I had a connection uh, who knew someone at McGraw-Hill, and he put me in contact with them, and I had a conversation with an editor there. And uh, like I said, my book was originally focused on defense and aerospace, which is my background. And he said, well, that's, that's too narrow an, an audience um, to get it published and try to reach a broader audience. We'd like you to try to expand it to all projects. So that was a a risk that I took in terms of that was, well, okay, uh, that's, that's a, a tall order. Now, it's, it's kind of a case where in 2020 I was able to make some lemonade out of lemons because it was around that time when I uh, signed the deal with McGraw-Hill. I had about six weeks to, to, to do a lot of rework to expand the scope of my book to, to consider all types of projects. And um, we, we decided to kind of lock down and stay at home for about, about 10 weeks. And so I spent the next six weeks furiously, you know, rewriting, uh, writing and rewriting, and um, I was able to get my manuscript submitted on time. So I took kind of a risk when I did that, but uh, it's one of the kinds of cases where I was able to finish on time. So I, I delivered that in um, at the end of uh, April. Uh, during, during that time, I, ha I would send some things over to the editor to look at to make sure I was on the right track because he said, you know, because he looked at the initial manuscript and said, well, you're so focused on defense and aerospace, you need to broaden it. So he would give me some feedback in places where I still was too focused on that. And uh, But then he kind of left me alone for a few weeks and finished the rest of it. And then he gave me some edits, and we went back and forth on some edits over about the next month through the end of May. And then once you're done with that uh, process, then it goes over to the, what's called the copy editing process. And they take you – know, my, my book has uh, about 90 uh, figures and tables. You know, uh, I, I explain everything. There's, there's some mathematical concepts behind my work, but I explain everything through graphs and figures so that uh, pretty much anyone uh, can, can read it that's uh, got some business background. And uh, so what they took was they took uh, my Word document, and then I had some – Excel files and PowerPoint slides where I'd, you know, done some graphs. And they took that and turned it into a complete manuscript in PDF format. And then they provided a, a first round of edits. 
And uh, it was amazing how many, even I, I had I had looked at it, and then my wife, who's an attorney, she had done a lot of editing and then read through it, make sure it was readable, and given me a lot of uh, comments. I'm, I'm really bad about and writing about uh, commas and placement of commas, and so she helped me uh, with that. And uh, even though I, that, that process had gone on and the professional editor looked at it, when the first round of edits came through, I made 300 changes. The wow. very first round through, yeah. And it was all kinds of things. I still have mistakes in examples. I have mistakes in figures. I have mistakes, you know, and, and just just little edits. And I would, they, they found a lot of things, and I found a few more. And it went back to them for another for another pass. So they found some more edits. I went through, and I made 200 changes the second time through. And then uh, and then went back one more time. And I was like, I can't believe I'm still finding this magnitude of errors, you know. But still, it was a little bit less than the first time. And then the third time through, it was 100 changes. But I, I said, if I could keep it down to 100 changes, it would be good. <laughs> and then went through the process. They, they, uh, the, the indexer uh, made some suggestions. They made an index for the book, put it back. And he had made some suggested changes. But uh, And then it kind of ended around the end of uh, uh, August. And then it went over to, to the printer to be published. And then uh, I got my... Uh, author copies on October 8th. So it's about, and it, it was officially released on November 3rd. And the ebook comes out on, um, on Tuesday. So it's about a six month process, but actually from actually, I've already had something kind of complete and complete manuscript. And it takes about six months to turn that into a published book. So it's a long process. It takes a lot of, uh, I said the main thing it takes is persistence. I don't think I'm the best writer in the world, but, um, but you know, with, with a lot of hard work, writing is a, is a skill. It's just something you have to work at. And, uh, and so just with a lot of hard work and a lot of persistence, I would suggest anyone that's, that wants to write a book, you just really have to stick to it. And I, I think it could be compared to one of those things when, when people talk about you know, writing a book, something like that, maybe creating an album or, or you know, something in that form. So many people aren't going to continue and, and finish. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to quit halfway through. A lot of people are going to say, you know, what, what separates you from somebody who, who tried to write a book and could not? A lot of things, but amongst those things might be just the perseverance and the fact that you're like, well, I'm going to see this through because I'm sure when COVID happened, that was one that maybe somebody would say, well, you know, maybe this isn't a good time. I need to focus on this and that. Um, you know, when, when you got the 300 edits back and maybe somebody would say, wow, you know, maybe this isn't for me, but that's a lot, that's a lot of stuff. I'm changing a lot of stuff. Um, but, but you pushed through and, and kept seeing it through and that, uh, you know, that kind of got you where you are today. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a key thing is a perseverance and, and, and sticking to a, a goal. And, and I had noticed that there were a lot of issues with risk. So I was uh, really, you know, been really passionate. So that takes a lot of passion and, uh, a lot of desire to see something through. So it just takes a lot of, you know, the combination of, you really need to, to want it, and then you have to stick to it. Christian Smart, our guest this morning, and we're talking about a book that he just came out with, a book that he published all, pretty much all the way through. I mean, this was, this was a, uh, you could say, maybe a rocky road. There was a lot of edits that had to be done, and one of the things that, uh, that came up that you know, we just discussed was this book was published and created through COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to ask you to start with that, and, and just tell me a little bit more about that moment when COVID hit. What were some of the thoughts going through your head? Did you have any doubt that maybe this wasn't the time to do the book? This wasn't the time to finish? Maybe you put the project on hold? Or from the get-go, were you saying, we're getting this thing done? Well, actually, I saw it as a tremendous moment of uncertainty, but I saw it as an opportunity. So um, I, it was a little bit uh, uh, a flashback to my graduate school um, experience. It was a little bit like graduate school. I was, I was towards the end of finishing my dissertation, but I was uh, having trouble focusing on actually making some final edits and getting, getting things uh, finally submitted. And I had a deadline coming up, and an ice storm hit. And I was stuck inside for about five days, and that gave me – the final push, the impetus to actually focus on my work and put it all together. So I kind of saw this as a similar opportunity that I was going to be kind of shut down, locked in, wouldn't be, have a lot of distractions except for, you know, things going out the house. But I could, I could really focus and, and, uh, and, and lock down and, and really focus on the book. So I kind of saw it as an opportunity. I saw it as a, as a way to turn something negative into a positive. Fantastic. Now, I want to hear a little bit more about your background. You grew up uh, in Alabama. Yes. Did your schooling in Alabama for the most part from when you were a kid up and through college. Talk about that. Where did you uh, spend your time and uh, what were some of the things you picked up throughout those years that maybe led to you writing this book? Was this something you were interested in at a younger age, or did this come about maybe in the last couple of years? 
I've always been kind of interested in the subject of risk. I think it's kind of interesting. I, I grew up in Alabama, like you said. Uh, went to uh, high school in Gadsden, Alabama. I'm from native of Gadsden. Uh, I went to Emma Sansom High School. I went to Jacksonville State University. I studied math and economics, and I, I think you know, risk is kind of a, uh, kind of combines both of those to some extent. So I always found risk to be fascinating. I went, then went to graduate school at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and studied applied math. And then when I completed uh, my education there, I went to, to work uh, as a contractor supporting NASA. And one of the very first projects I worked on involved risk, and it was a, a project to uh, determine the probability the space shuttle would blow up, as I, as I like to call it, and um, a space shuttle probabilistic risk assessment. So that was my first exposure to risk. And then I switched over and started doing uh, cost analysis for NASA programs um, and then uh, worked for the Missile Defense Agency for several years. I was their cost director. And the missile defense is trying to shoot down you know, potentially a North Korean missile, you know, shooting a bullet down with a bullet. A lot of risk there, so the risk was always an interest of mine uh, regarding that. So, uh, you know, risk has kind of been something I've been interested in a long time and kind of been the focus of a lot of my research because it's, uh, it's interesting to me both from a technical standpoint and also from, a, a, you know, kind of, a, a, a kind of overall, just kind of an overall subject. Now, you said when you were starting to write the book, one of the things that they suggested was to make it a more broad topic. So yes. not just risk involving one category, but maybe a risk just involved in all of life's choices from big to small. Uh, did you learn anything when you kind of re-looked at it from that angle? Or did you kind of tool things to maybe sound a little more user-friendly and kind of it can relate a uh, single experience to multiple experiences? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I kind of had, I had read some other things about risk where they talked about uh, roads and bridges so i thought well they probably probably will apply i just need to do a little research and i found that it was pretty much about the same you know a lot of people think that defense and aerospace uh there's two kind of problems with, with defense one is that um that things are much more expensive than they ought to be so for example the air force spent ten thousand dollars to replace a toilet toilet seat cover in 2017 so it's outrageously expensive that's that's one problem a separate problem is the the risk and the cost growth and schedule delays that's a little bit separate problem there's two kind of twin problems that are somewhat related so i kind of people think that that those are the things that are most expensive but in doing my research i kind of found it was sort of middle of the road the actual uh, worst type of project for cost growth is the olympics uh, it grows by on average 150 percent so two and a half times what it initially expected to cost and a variety of reasons it tends to have a fixed schedule and it never had a schedule overrun until this year because of covid and they had to delay it a year, um, you know, which is one of the interesting things about risk is uh, is important the impacts and interrelationship between cost and schedule. If you try to do things too quickly, uh, it winds up costing more. If you take too long, it costs more. So either which way you go, um, any change to schedule, either lengthening it or compressing it, it's going to increase cost. Uh, it's one of the interesting things about risk. But so you found that that it applied to all types of projects, even even roads. You think, well, you're laying down some asphalt, um, doing something fairly simple. Uh, even those, on average, the you know the cost grows about 20%, and they experience frequent schedule delays. So you know you you look around here locally, they've been planning to uh, widen Thompson Lane for for quite some time, and it's, it's still ongoing. Right? And they really haven't done a lot of the, the work, been doing a lot of surveys, but they haven't really done a lot of the the, the real the real work of it so mm -hmm. far. Tell us where you could find the book. Is it available and when it's available, I should say. Uh, where can you find the book? And, and I'm thinking, from my perspective, this book is going to have a lot of interesting facts, a lot of interesting figures that I would not have known, some of that you've shared with us already. But from another standpoint, this might be something you could relate, again, to everyday life. Uh, this is something somebody could read and take with them while they're grocery shopping, while they're getting their car repaired, while they're looking at a, a house to rent, looking for that new job um, yes. and factoring in different things. Um, so I, you know, I'm thinking this could be a book that, that pretty much anybody can read and, and kind of take their own perspective from and, and use that in their day-to-day. -day. Uh, but tell us how we can find this book and remind us again when it comes out and uh, you know anything else we might need to know for, for somebody who's looking to, to pick up a copy. And with Christmas right around the corner, it could be a great right. Christmas gift as well. Yes, that's right. Uh, so it's, it's, the, it's out in hardcover now. It's available at Barnes & Noble and Amazon online. 
Uh, it's in some select Barnes & Noble stores. I think the, the one in uh, Cool Springs, there's uh, copies available there. Um, you know, it's it's uh, out there in hardcover, soon be available in uh, ebook version, so you can look for it there. Uh, yeah, so an example of my own life uh, that, that where this applies is we, uh, we bought a house at auction and did, my wife and I bought a house at auction and did a home improvement project. Uh, it, it, it tripled. You know, what we initially expected to pay to renovate it to actually what it actually cost, it, it tripled in cost. So, um, you know, some lessons learned there. I should apply some more of my risk management techniques to, uh, to try to mitigate that. But it's, uh, um, so yeah, something that, that applies to every, every region of life. Any kind of, any kind of home renovation project that you do, uh, there's always a, it tends to, cost tends to overrun. Um, one practical uh, point there that I should have applied that, uh, that I didn't is what, what you, what you want to do when you do something like that is you want to try to seek out, um, multiple quotes. And, and we just went with, with one person. So, you know, a single source uh, uh, selection kind of thing tends to cost more than, than you know, trying to get a competitive bid. So that's just one, one uh, practical tip that, that, that uh, your listeners can, can take away from this. Fantastic, Christian. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, happy Thanksgiving, a day late. I know we're uh, just coming on the other end of the Thanksgiving break here, and uh, many of us are uh, with family, traveling, staying home, that sort of thing. So we appreciate you giving us a few minutes this morning. Tell us the name of that book one more time in full and where we can find it. Yeah, so Solving for Project Risk Management. Uh, understanding the critical role of uncertainty in project management. It's available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and my name is against Christian Smart. Easy way to remember my name is uh, my middle name is Boyd. So on the school rolls, it shows up as uh, it shows up as Smart Christian Boyd. But because you know Christian is nine letters, so it, it, one, the last letter would get cut off on my middle name. So it it would show up on school rolls as Smart Christian Boyd, you know, the computer <laughs> rolls. So so easy way to remember my name is think of me as a Smart Christian Boyd. So if you if you if you can't remember the name of the book, say I want to find that book by that Smart Christian Boyd. <laughs> Well, Christian, wanted to thank you again just for uh, coming on this morning, giving us a few minutes. Best of luck with everything moving forward. Excited to check out that book. And uh, for our listeners out there listening, it's available now. You can go find the hard uh, copy and uh, be available online as well. So awesome stuff, sir. Congratulations on that. And uh, way to see that project all the way through. And uh, we just uh, appreciate your time this morning. Well, thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. All righty. We have Truman Show coming up next and uh, some MTSU basketball on the way next hour top of the hour news as well lots going on today on this black friday so stay with us weather and traffic this hour is brought to you by first class sales and service of smyrna they are your hometown auto repair shop and they're reminding you not to wait on those repair jobs and end of your maintenance simple things like windshield wipers fluids oil things like that can be so crucial in the cold months so don't wait talk to one of their experts today and if you're a teacher student or first responder in rutherford county Found out how you can receive special discounts on labor costs for your next job. That's First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. They're located on 307 Hazelwood Drive. Schedule that appointment today. The forecast here for this afternoon calls for continued sunshine with a high in the mid-60s. Heading into tonight, mostly cloudy, lower 40s. I'm meteorologist Derek Dahlman on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 36. Morning traffic still moving right now, down 24 coming in from Coffee County into Rutherford County, passing Epps Middle Road. We did see quite a bit of radar earlier on 24 around Medical Center Parkway. Just give yourself extra time out here, slow it down. To cater your next holiday party, call Prince's Hot Chicken or go online, princesshotchicken.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. Hi, I'm Wade Hayes, owner of Toots Good Food and Fun. 
I strongly believe that volunteers make a positive difference in the quality of life here in our community. Murfreesboro Lions Club member Danelle Bratcher has volunteered for almost two decades with the local club's site program. Danelle Bratcher has a passion for helping sight-impaired including co-chairing activities involving the National Association for the Blind and on the board of the local club, too. Danelle Bratcher with the Murfreesboro Lions Club is our Toots Outstanding Volunteer. At Toots, we strongly believe that it's important for every one of our citizens to give some of their time and talent back into the community. And we want to honor these individuals with a Toots gift certificate good at any of our Rutherford County locations. 860 Northwest Broad Street on Church Street in the Barfield area in Smyrna on Sam Ridley and Toots West on Franklin Road at Rucker Lane. Old friends, new name, better together as First National Bank of Murfreesboro transforms into Capstar Bank. Our focus is on you. We're entering a new generation of banking in Rutherford County, but we'll always remain a community bank with local people you trust and uniquely exceptional service you deserve. We're at 2230 Mercury Boulevard, capstar.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The voice of Rutherford County, the flagship station for Blue Raiders sports. Time on the courthouse clock is 9 o'clock. <laughs> 